You're listening to teaching from the Word of God, provided by Black Forest Chapel. This is the church where you will find biblical teaching and authentic worship with family and friends. We are located in Black Forest near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs, Colorado. We invite you to join us this Sunday. Find our location, worship times, and more at blackforestchapel.org. As you know, we're going through the book of Exodus, uh, but because it's Palm Sunday and then Resurrection Sunday next week, we're going to be diving into uh, the message of Jesus Christ. And so uh, I will be giving you a Palm Sunday message, and then Pastor Mike, when he's back, will be giving you the Resurrection Sunday message. So my name is Scott Barbie, a member of Black Forest Chapel. I'm glad to hear preach to preach to you. And as you can see from the screen, we'll be talking about Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king. It is a common theme among Christians because we understand that Jesus fills out these offices. These are the three offices of Christ because Christ displayed in his life and ministry that he was a prophet, he was a priest, and he was also a king. So let's pray and then dive into it. Lord, we are grateful that we have you as our prophet, priest, and king. And you fulfilled each of those offices perfectly, and you blended them together perfectly so that we have you as our wonderful example. It sounds very lofty, prophet, priest, and king, but you're also so very personal. You know our struggles, our failures, our weaknesses. You know our successes and our hopes and our dreams. You know it all, Lord, and you love us, and you died for us, and you are preparing heaven right now for us. Whatever way that looks like, that's what you're doing, and one day you'll come back for us. Lord, we have a history, and we have a hope for a future, and not just a future here in this life, but a future that's eternal. So, Father, we come humbly uh, to this message to try to understand what you're telling us about who you are, how we respond to you, how we can share your love and grace and truth with others in a world that is hurting so much. Lord, you have the words of life, and you have made us your ambassadors to reach others, whether it's kids through the Life Network, whether it's co-workers at work, whether it's family who do not believe, whether it's the stranger in the grocery store. Lord, you have made us ambassadors, and we want to take every opportunity to share the grace and love of Jesus as your Holy Spirit directs us. So equip us, not only for today, but for the next week, for the next year. Equip us for doing your work. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus as prophet, priest, and king are offices which are usually separate. Now, if you are a student of history, you'll know that every now and again, somebody in history tried to fulfill usually the office of priest and king, but not very well, because the offices are so distinct and each requires so much that you really can't blend them together. But in the person of Jesus, we see that it blends perfectly, and that's what we're going to study. Now, 49 years before Jesus Christ was born, a Roman general stood on the banks of the river Rubicon, Julius Caesar. And he had to make a decision as a general 
Does he disband his army as he was directed to by the Roman Senate and go back into Rome and get arrested on, on charges that were not real? Does he do that or does he cross over the Rubicon with his army being considered a traitor, march into Rome and take over? Well, if you're a student of history, you know what he did. He crossed the Rubicon, and in fact, it's a phrase that's used often enough in life. If you cross your Rubicon, it means you have made a decision of no return. You can't go back, and that's what Caesar did. He went in, he conquered, he set himself up as dictator for life. Of course, it didn't work so well five years later. He was assassinated by some of his own followers. But this is the stuff of history. This is the stuff that you would read in a history book of the world. One ruler taking over, doing something. Then another ruler taking over and doing something. They usually enter into a city or a nation with a lot of bravado, killing, destruction, death. It's the conquering victor who lasts for a while until somebody else comes and takes over. This is the stuff of history that we're so familiar with, and you even see it today. It's not just the stuff of history, it's the stuff of now. What about Jesus? He's a king. You and I recognize that, even though the people of this day didn't quite understand. What about Jesus? He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He can take over everything. Did he enter Jerusalem that way? And the answer is no. Now we'll talk about Jesus as king later, but Jesus is so much different than the earthly rulers that we see today or even of history. Jesus came to conquer, but he did so through humility. He didn't do so through arrogance like Caesar or the other rulers. Jesus is distinctly different And because of that, we know that he really is different, and we start responding in that way through faith. Now, not everyone does that, but for those who recognize that Jesus is distinctly different, they start asking the question, why? What is different about him? And what you eventually come to when you start asking, why is Jesus different, is Jesus was a prophet, Jesus was a priest, and Jesus was a king as well, and yet very loving humble, gentle, who spoke the truth and who shared the truth. And as we walk through this passage, we're going to see the three offices of Jesus working out as Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die and also to be resurrected. So let's look at Jesus as prophet, and I'll start in verse 29 of chapter 20. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Let's talk about the ministry of prophet. Oftentimes we think that a prophet is a person who tells the future. And if that's our understanding, that's a limited understanding. Let's get a fuller understanding. A prophet could be a variety of people uh, with a variety of vocations. 
Foretelling is a slice of prophecy, but the majority of prophecy is what we call forthtelling. It's taking a situation right now and talking about it in light of what God has already said to us. That is prophecy. That's the majority of what you read through the prophets. But the prophets aren't just from Isaiah and on, as your Bible would show it. There were the former prophets, and then there were the later prophets. Who were the former prophets? Abel, the brother of Cain, was a former prophet. Jesus even calls him a prophet in Luke chapter 11. Abel is a prophet as he was obedient to the Lord to offer the right type of sacrifice. Noah is considered a prophet as he was obedient to make an ark in the middle of a desert where there's no rain, to make an ark by faith and to have the animals come so that he could save them and also save the people within it. Abraham is considered a prophet because he made intercessory prayer on behalf of Pharaoh as Pharaoh and his family were struggling through their own sin. Moses and Joshua are considered prophets as they led the people out of Egypt into the promised land. Samuel, Deborah, Gideon, and the judges are considered the former prophets as they led the people back into a right way of living before God. King David is considered a prophet, clearly considered a prophet with all of his writings, especially the Psalms. And then we have the other prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea and Joel and Haggai, men and women who spoke God's truth, who did what God wanted them to do. That is the definition of prophet. So no wonder when Jesus came and he starts teaching the people and starts healing, what did they call them? What did the Jews call them? Well, what do you call a person like that? You call him a prophet because that's what prophets do. So Jesus, for three years, went around Israel teaching the people God's law and healing them, healing the blind, the lame, raising people from the dead, feeding people when they were hungry. Jesus is a prophet because prophets do that type of work, and yet he's so much more. They don't quite understand that. In fact, how do you understand Christ with all that he did? But they gave him the name that they understood best, and that was prophet. Some were starting to go the Messiah route, but that's the name that you only apply to a certain person, and we don't know if he's that person yet. So they gave him the name prophet. So here Jesus is in Jericho. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Jesus knows he's going to be dead through a very gruesome death in less than a week. I tend to uh, get very compartmentalized when I have to zero in on some task I have to do. And because of that, I would tend to leave other things aside that I don't want to work on. But here Jesus knows he has a ministry to save the world from sin, but he stops to heal to people who are calling out to him. Jesus' life was about ministry. So these men, these blind men, realize they have one chance at getting all to Jesus. And so they shout, Jesus, we need you. And the crowd rebukes them, be quiet. I mean, he's a prophet, you know, prophets heal, but be quiet. But they had only one chance, so they cry out even louder, and then Jesus stops, and Jesus asks. Jesus has compassion. Jesus touches their eyes, and they're healed. David with Life Network talked about what they want kids to know, that they're loved, valued, and needed. 
Do you think these blind men believed that they were loved, valued, and needed by Jesus? Absolutely, because he was willing to take the time to reach out and touch them with a healing touch. That's the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is a prophet, and this is what prophets do. Not only heal, but also teach. Jesus was constantly teaching people about God's law, God's truth, who God is. And so Jesus fills out the role of prophet perfectly. Ironically, these two blind men who could not see could see Jesus as being the person who could help them. Later on, we're going to see how the chief chief priest and the scribes in the temple could see Jesus clearly with their eyes, but they really couldn't see. They were blind because of their own greed. Those who are blind can see by faith. Sometimes those people without uh, who can see can't see clearly or they're blind because they don't have the faith. These blind men could see and knew that Jesus was the one who could help them because he was a prophet. And so now Jesus goes into Jerusalem. Jesus is a prophet still, but now he's going to do something that shows us that he's also a king, and not showing us only, but also those who are there. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and he does so in a way befitting of a king. Let me start with chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with their colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed, shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The crowd answers that Jesus is a prophet because that's what they understand. Even as they celebrated the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, as they would celebrate a king coming into the city. Now, they don't want to be labeled insurrectionist, so they're not going to call him king. Otherwise, they might be in trouble with Herod or Caesar. But that's how they entered, that's how they welcomed him in, with celebrations. They cut off palm branches, they're waving them in the air, very showy, just like you might do with banners. They are singing and saying, Hosanna, which means, O save. They're recognizing him as the son of David. There's even prophecy tied with Jesus coming in from Zechariah chapter 9 as Jesus comes in on a donkey. Now, world rulers like Caesar, Well, he came in on a stallion, decked out in armor, brandishing his sword with arrogance, the conquering spirit. Jesus doesn't come into Jerusalem that way. He came in on a donkey, an animal that's considered peaceful and gentle. 
Because the way you conquer the real enemy is not with a sword, but it's with humility. Caesar believed that the enemy was Pompey, the ruler of Rome at the time, or the Roman Senate. The enemy is a person. The enemy is people. So I've got to fight against the enemy. That's not who Jesus was going to conquer. That's too small of an enemy. The real enemy is sin. And Jesus had to conquer sin. It's not conquering a person. It's conquering the sin in us that constantly badgers us every single moment of our lives. That's the enemy that Jesus had to conquer. And how do you conquer sin? You conquer it through humility. What if I said to God, God, I love you. I care about you. I can see you care about me. And you know what, God? I think I can do this on my own. Yeah, I got sin issues. But you know what, God? I'm a seasoned veteran Christian. I can do this on my own. So you just watch me do your work to get rid of my sin. If I said that, I'm toast. Not lightly brown either. Just a crumbled piece of toast, you know, burnt on the bottom of the toaster. Because Satan loves to hear us say things like that. I can do it on my own. Humility says, God, I I can't do anything. I know just how often I fail. God, I need your spirit to help me to get over this sin. And not just one sin, Lord, many sins. I need your help. Humility is what conquers the greatest enemy of all, and that is human sin. Thomas Akempis, in his book, The Imitation of Christ, says it so well. You want to conquer something in this life? Conquer yourself. If you do that, you've conquered the greatest enemy you'll ever have. Don't worry about conquering other people. God takes care of that. i got to conquer myself, my own sin, my own problems, but I can't do it by myself. I need God's help. Jesus showed us that entering into Jerusalem in humility is how you conquer sin, so I need to approach my sinful life with humility. God, I need your help. This is revolutionary. Kings don't do this. You never saw Caesar become humble like this, or Pharaoh, as we're studying him in the books of Genesis and Exodus. Kings don't do that. They have arrogance and pomp. Humility is the way you deal with your sin. Humility is the way you deal with so much of what we see in life, and Jesus demonstrates that as king. Jesus comes in humbly, He tells them to get the donkey. Never had been ridden, so it's pure. Jesus comes in, and he is accepting their uh, jubilation. He is accepting their celebration because he is king, even though others do not recognize this. And in one of the other gospel accounts, the Pharisees are getting very mad at Jesus because the disciples are praising his name. And do you remember what Jesus said? If they don't do it, the rocks will do it. Something is going to praise the king coming into his city. Whether it's people or whether it's rocks, it doesn't matter. I am the king, and I'm going to come in and conquer the enemy, which is sin. So Jesus demonstrates for us his kingly nature in that he provides us protection and power. Protection from the sin that constantly assails us and the power to say no to that same sin. Caesar had a reign of five years and he was deified by the Romans as they usually did. But I don't see that kingdom around anymore. How do you think the kingdom of Christ is doing? It's alive and well and your representatives of it. Why did the early church survive as well as it did? 
because it should have just blinked out of existence. Well, a sociologist by the name of Rodney Stark wrote a book about 30 years ago asking the same question, and he titled the book The Rise of Christianity. Now, he wasn't a Christian, and I don't know if he is, but he wanted to know, as a sociologist, he studies peoples and demographics and populations, and so he came across this conundrum. Here is this small group of 3,000 people who are believing in this man, Jesus, and after 300 years, they're 3 million people strong. That's impossible. That, that does not happen. So what happened that made this possible? Now, he's looking at this of the eyes of a professor and an unbeliever, so he's asking those type of academic questions, we would say by faith, but it's an interesting book in that he is exploring it from that angle. And he has many reasons why. I'm going to give you the top three. Why did the church flourish? It's because the church cared about people. The Roman Empire was not very sympathetic to the sick and the poor. Hey, if you can't make it, that's on you. I guess the gods just don't like you. If you're wealthy enough, maybe you can afford a doctor, but I'm not going to help you because I might get sick. So you were on your own. That's why the life expectancy in Rome was about 35 years old. What did the church do? Well, they cared for the sick. So if there was somebody sick, they would care for them and nurse them back to health. What does this have the effect of doing? It builds up immunities with the caretakers. Now the caretakers are staying alive longer. They're helping others to stay alive longer. The Christian church starts growing. The Roman Empire starts decreasing. After all, if you're nursed to health from someone, you have an affinity toward that person. Where would your allegiance lie? With an uncaring empire or with a church body that really cared for you? In scientific terms, we call this a no-brainer. That's a no-brainer. I think I would rather align myself with those who care versus those who do not. That's one reason why the church grew. The second reason is that they elevated the status of women. Women were property back then. Unless you were a woman married to a wealthy individual, then maybe your status was a bit higher. But for most women, you were just property. But not in the body of Christ. You're made in the image of God. God loves you. God died for you. You're as important as everyone else. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, one family together. The elevation of women, their status increased. And because women just happen to give birth to babies, that means you've got a population that's growing, not decreasing like it did with the Roman Empire. The third reason is that Christians cared about children. The Roman Empire and the people within it were pretty brutal, even with their own people. And there's a letter written, and I remember reading it in that book that I referenced, where the husband is talking to his wife, and he says, I'm here in Gaul, which was the, the name of France. I'm here. I'm doing this work. Your term is coming up. If you deliver a baby girl, discard it. Baby boy, keep it. Love you very much. See you soon. It was that basic and just perfunctory, and it was their way of life. It's a girl, get rid of it. Boy, keep it. The Christians didn't say that. God created everything. These children are important, so Christians cared for their kids and raised the kids up and taught kids the values that they needed to know to live a godly, successful life. And why did all of this happen? Because Christ is king. 
He established a whole new way of understanding what it meant to be a person, a family, a church, a people, and a nation. It was only going to be a matter of time before Rome went out, but the kingdom of Christ has continued because we care for each other. We care for the people outside of this building. We care for the people throughout the world. That's why we send out missionaries. So Jesus fills the role of prophet perfectly, teaching and healing. He fills the role of king perfectly, providing us protection and power. And now we get to the role of priest. Let me read verses 12 through 17. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. If Jesus came in as a prophet, and only a prophet, he wouldn't have gone, at least I don't think he would have gone to the temple, and I don't think he would have gone to the palace. Prophets circulated among the common people, typically, teaching and and doing their work. If Jesus came in as a king only, he would have gone to the seat of government authority or to the palace. But Jesus comes into Jerusalem and goes right to the temple. Why? Because he's a priest, and he has work to do there. The temple of Herod was grand. It was opulent for those standards. Many things occurred in the temple, the typical temple practices, but over time, conveniences set in. Hey, wouldn't it be great if we just brought the animals here? People don't have to buy them outside the city. Hey, if they're going to buy them here, we've got to set up some sort of interchange of money. So this system developed where you could buy and sell your animals in the temple. But the temple wasn't supposed to be like that. I think we have an understanding of that. What if this church happened to make that room right over there a place where you could buy and sell things, maybe a big sign that would say eBay Station, and you would hear the clinking of metal uh, coins, and people are going in and out, and you're hearing the hooping and hollering of people buying and exchanging things. And over here, we could have a sign that would say Amazon Way. And it's going to be the exact same thing, a lot of buying and selling and a lot of things going on. And oh, because you've got to change money, well, that room back there can be a place where we got some tellers, ATM machines. Hey, this is a place of commerce and business. Oh, we are a church, so we're going to have a little Bible study over here, but you know, you just do the, you just do that on your own time. If a person came in and saw all of that, do you think they would say, yeah, this is a place where you worship God? Of course not. They would say, what is this place? They say the church or a chapel, but I'm not sensing that. Jesus comes into the temple and he should see Sacrifice and worship and people giving burnt offerings for sin and thank offerings for gratitude. He should see people who are in need coming to the priest because the priest had 
a type of doctor medical role as well, or a diagnostic role, which we read in the book of Leviticus. But he's not seeing any of that. No wonder the Savior got very upset. This is supposed to be a holy place where people can meet God and worship him. And that isn't happening. So in one of the few instances, we see our Savior getting extremely mad. And I would not want to be on the receiving end of an angry God. Now, please hear me correctly. God isn't always like this. In fact, God is more loving than he is angry. But when he gets angry, it means that something's wrong and something has to change. And so Jesus got angry. This isn't what should be going on. Tables go up. Money goes everywhere. He throws benches over. People are getting scattered. And what's the next thing he does, according to what we read? The blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. Why? Because that's what you do in the temple. That's why Jesus is our priest. Not because he got angry. He had to clear all of that filth out. He's the priest because he knows how to minister to people and heal their basic needs. Jesus displays for us in one person a prophet, a priest, and a king. One theologian took all the offices of Christ and he He made a great statement here, which I want to read back to you, and then I'm going to put it into the context of this passage. This theologian said, As prophet, Jesus meets the problem of man's ignorance, supplying him with knowledge. As priest, Jesus meets the problem of man's guilt, supplying him with righteousness. As king, Jesus meets the problem of of man's weakness and dependence, supplying him with power and protection. So now let me try to fill this out in the context of what we just read in Scripture. Jesus was a prophet, and he was recognized and sought after, but perhaps not necessarily for the right reasons. The people had a limited understanding But as a prophet, Jesus fulfilled the duty of proclamation, of telling people what God wants. And by doing so, he overcame the problem of man's ignorance by providing them with the knowledge of the holy. As a priest, Jesus entered the temple, but he saw temple practices and they shouldn't have been going on. So as a priest, Jesus fulfilled the duty of intercession. And we saw that when he was ministering to the blind and lame, he interceded on their behalf. And by doing so, Jesus overcame the problem of man's guilt by providing him with righteousness. Not a righteousness that would degenerate and be manipulated into a self-righteousness, but a righteousness from God which allows us to live by faith, which is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And finally, Jesus was a king, and he entered into Jerusalem, but not everybody welcomed him, certainly not the political elite. Well, as king, Jesus fulfilled the duty of protection. By doing so, he overcame the problem of man's weakness by providing him with power, not the power that would cause one man to dominate over another, but the power to say no to sin and yes to godliness. So who is this Jesus Christ whom we worship? He is priest, he is king, he is prophet. He has majestic authority, he has priestly intercession, 
He is our unblemished sacrifice. He is the Prince of Peace, and he is a loving healer. As I end this sermon, let me go back to old Julius Caesar. He's considered to be one of the most brilliant military minds in the world, and he was a very shrewd, calculating, even ruthless political leader. Because of his notoriety, uh, nations have tried to style themselves after him. The German leadership has their, the name of their emperor as Kaiser. Well, Kaiser comes from the name Caesar. The Russians do the same thing. The name of their ruler is Tsar. Well, that comes from Caesar, too. So no doubt Caesar has had worldwide influence. I tried to find out how many books were written about Caesar from the time he lived until now, but I couldn't find a number. I'm going to throw out a guess. Well into the hundreds, maybe even thousands. A lot has been written about the man. What about Jesus? Do you think a lot of books have been written about him? Secretly, you might be saying, I hope it's a lot more than Caesar. (laughs) Well, if you have that hope, then that's the case. In one of my theology books, the author talks about Jesus' divinity and humanity. And he said that, and this was written 30 years ago, that over 66,000 books have been written about Christ over the last 100 years. Okay, I'm guessing that means that over the entire time from when Jesus was doing his ministry till now, we have well over 100,000 books written about Christ. Why would so many people write so many books about one person? Because he's prophet, because he's priest, because he's king. He meets our needs. He understands what we feel like. What he said was true. His promises are faithful. We have the promise of a resurrected life. And we can bank on that for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Christ, As our Lord, we owe you so much. And yet you made the first step. You died for our sins. So, so in faith, we respond to that and say thank you. Thank you for saving us, and thank you for providing for our needs. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from the Word of God. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit Black Forest Chapel in Black Forest, Colorado, near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs. You'll find biblical teaching and authentic worship in an environment that feels like family and friends. Get directions and more information at blackforestchapel.org.